My name is Arlene Chan, and I was born and grew up in Toronto and spent a large part of my growing up in Toronto's Chinatown. I went to University of Toronto, got my undergraduate degree at U of T, and then I did a master's program in library science. So then I graduated as a librarian and I worked for 30 years at the Toronto Public Library. I retired about almost 15 years ago, and since then I've been very, very busy, almost busier than usual, working on numerous projects, and I'm still writing, and um, of course my tours of Chinatown have stopped because of pandemic, and doing a lot of interviews and also a lot of presentations on Zoom about the history of the Chinese in Toronto and in Canada. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. My name is Nina Zhou. You're listening to the Chinatown Memory Podcast. I hope to bring you voices from the interviews collected from my oral history master of arts thesis, which I'm exploring different aspects of Chinese Canadian history and life experience. The project features intergenerational voices from stories behind Toronto Chinatown. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Arlene, the famous Chinese-Canadian historian, writer, activist, and a prominent member of the community. She's going to talk about the immigration stories of her family, the history of Toronto Chinatown, and in particular, her family's active involvement in the Chinatown community. And finally, she will share with us her keen interest in celebrating Chinese culture and traditions through writing and giving public talks. According to our family stories, my great-grandfather came to Canada to help to build the Canadian Pacific Railway, but I didn't hear too many stories about him, but I know more stories about my grandfather on my mother's side. He came to Canada in 1899. When he came at the time, there was a head tax and he paid $50 head tax. He was one of the few Chinese men who could afford to, a few years later, to bring my grandmother over. And by the time she came, the head tax was $100. That is on my mother's side. On my father's side, my father came in 1921. And by the time he came, the head tax was $500. So he paid that. And unfortunately, my father was never able to bring his family over, his parents so and his brother and sister so they remained back in China so I've never met anyone that was still left behind in China so my dad came on his own when he was very very young my maternal grandfather when he came he worked as a farm laborer working in the fields and this was would have been in British Columbia and by the time he brought over my grandmother and my first uncle because there were 12 children that on my mother's side so the first, the eldest child was born in China, and then the 11 other children were born in British Columbia. So when my grandmother came over with my first uncle, by then my grandfather was working in a coal mine in Nanaimo, uh, British Columbia, on the Vancouver Island, and worked there for a few years. More children were born, and eventually the family moved to Vancouver around the early 1930s. And my grandfather at that point had rented a hotel and the family lived in a hotel and also they 
rented out rooms for travelers, but then the depression years came. So my grandfather eventually had to give up the hotel because nobody could afford to pay for hotel rooms because there were no travelers and there was nobody that could afford to stay in hotels. So then my grandfather started up a little fruit store. So that's the story of my mother's parents in Vancouver until my mother as a 16-year-old moved to Toronto from Vancouver. Arlene's mother, Jean Lum, moved to Toronto to help her older sister, who ran a local fruit store. When she came, she also brought her younger sister, who was eight years old at the time. And according to my grandmother, because it would be one less mouth to feed. So my mother, as a 16-year-old, looked after her eight-year-old sister, and they moved from Vancouver and came to Toronto. My mother worked for a very short time for her older sister, and then eventually what my mother did was she borrowed $200, and at the age of 17, she opened up her own fruit store at Bathurst and St. Clair Avenue. And she did so well with her little fruit store that she was able to bring over her parents and her brothers and sisters to come to Toronto. So that's why most of them moved to Toronto in the late uh, 1930s. So... That's uh, how the Wong family, so my mother's born a Wong, that's how they all came to Toronto. And when they arrived in Toronto, they opened up two more fruit stores. So it was all like fruit stores uh, that my mother's family was involved in and making a living. That sounds like a pretty brave decision of like making an investment to support the family. Yes, yes. What happened when my grandmother arrived and uh, they settled down, my grandmother talked to my mom and said, well, you know, you're getting of that age. We should be looking for someone to get married. You should get married. And so my grandmother got a matchmaker because that's how things were done in those days. Found a matchmaker and found my father, Doyle Lum. And uh, my mother, when she first met her husband-to-be, she was quite impressed because he was a very handsome man and he dressed really well. He dressed like a Hollywood movie star, she thought. So anyhow, she was uh, quite taken with him and he was also in the grocery store business. So my grandmother thought it would be a good match because it would be a lot of uh, common, like they'd have things in common. So my mother had Well, they weren't called dates back then, but they went out together, but never alone because they always were chaperoned by her brothers and sisters. And so my mother got married in 1939 at Knox Presbyterian Church, and the church is still there at Harvard and Spadina. And she got married on Sunday, even though the churches did not like to do weddings on Sundays because that was the busiest day for churches. But my mother was able to convince the minister that she had to get married on Sunday because that was the only day that she didn't have to go to work because everything was closed on Sunday. So she was able to convince the minister that she was allowed to get married at the Knox Presbyterian Church. And it should have been a very happy day for her. But what happened on the day that she married my father was even though she was born in Canada and she was a citizen, she lost her citizenship because at the time uh, a woman had to take on the official status of the husband. And so because my father was born in China, she had to take on the official status of alien, which was what my father's official status was. 
And so it wasn't until uh, 1957, so almost 20 years later, that both my parents applied to be Canadian citizens. So they got their, their citizenship together. And eventually, um, and this is a story that comes full circle, my mother became a citizenship court judge um, and giving the oath of citizenship to hundreds of new Canadians. So it's, a, it's quite a, a, an amazing story uh, about how something that was very sad um, when my mom got married and become such a happy ending of a story, of that story of her life. At first, it was the hat tax, and then the Chinese Immigration Act in 1923, which is commonly referred to as the Chinese Exclusion Act, has deeply humiliated and scarred the Chinese community in Canada. It was invented to restrict entry of Chinese nationals. Now immigrants already in Canada were not able to bring their family over. The total population of Chinese remained a very small amount, along with an immensely disproportionate gender racial. Chinatown was like a small circle, a space that physically and culturally separated from the mainstream society. Chinatown, and I'm talking until up to the Second World War, Chinatown was very small. It had, you know, businesses there, people living there, but the population of the Chinese in Toronto up until the Second World War was only about 2,000 Chinese. So it was a very, very small population. And there was a lot of discrimination against Chinese people. So they tended just to stay within Chinatown. Um, I'm not saying that there weren't businesses and people living outside of Chinatown, but um, the Chinese like to stay together as much as possible. So the majority of businesses uh, that were Chinese owned, the majority of Chinese that were in the city at the time were living in Chinatown or close to Chinatown. The ratio of men to women when my mother arrived in 1935 was 18 to one. That meant that if you went to Chinatown, it was mostly men that you would see, very, very few women. And so that was what we called the bachelor society era of our early Chinese community. It was mostly men. And most of these men were actually married, but their wives and their families were, were left behind in China. These men were here by themselves. They lived like bachelors. So they, you know, they, they didn't have family. They didn't have... Um, they would work, but they wouldn't be able to go home to, to their families or to their wives. So it was a very lonely existence for them. So the early Chinatown, because the Chinese were so discriminated against, and there were no, like what we have now, settlement services, where if you come into a city and you're from another country, you get, there are many settlement services to help you find a place to live, find a job, learn how to speak English. These were services that were not available in those days. And so the early Chinese really relied on the, the various associations that were located in Chinatown. These associations were either based on your surname. So if you have a common surname like Wong or Li, um, then you, or, or Lum, which was my, my mother's married name, then you, oh, so there was the surname associations and then there were what we call locality associations. So depending where you were from, and you have to remember that the majority of the early immigrants who came to Canada were from the Guangdong province and they were from the four counties and the three counties. And so the predominant language that was spoken in Chinatown at that time was um, uh, Taishanese um, or Toy. 
Toishinese in Mandarin. And so it was a very homogeneous community, small, homogeneous, because pretty well everybody came from the Taishan County and shared the same customs and traditions. So the surnames is one kind of association. The second kind was locality. So if you were from the same village or you're from the same county, the, the members would be together there. We also had political associations. So the Nationalist Party had their association and um, the Freemasons were another political association. So what you would do is when you were new in Toronto, you would go to your association. So either your surname association or locality or even political association. And they would help you find a place to live, um, a job, if you needed to have letters written, if you wanted to send money back to China, if you had any kind of uh, questions, you would go to your association and that's where you would get your help. And so I remember um, growing up, and this would have been in the early 50s, going into the 60s, going into Chinatown, because Sunday would have been the day that um, the associations would have their members gather, because that would have been a day when all the businesses were closed, so that would be a day off. And um, that's where you would go and and, uh, meet with people, play mahjong, um, socialize. Um, And then another really important of all of these associations was um, a banking service because Chinese could not go and borrow money from banks. So they would go to their associations and they were able to borrow money um, from these associations. So these were the um, real backbone of the Chinese community, these associations. And um, there were also, um, music was very, very big part. So there were three um, music uh, societies before Second Second World War. And they not only trained people in Chinese music and and it was all Cantonese opera again, because the early immigrants came from the province of uh, Guangdong. And so they would teach um, music, how to play instruments or how to sing roles in Cantonese opera. And so I know my father, when he was in Toronto as a young man, before he got married, he was uh, belonged to one of the, the music societies. And because there were so few women, uh, he would always get the role of uh, the females. So he was playing female roles because once you get, he, he apparently looked very, very beautiful when he was all done with his makeup and his uh, costumes. And uh, afterwards, uh, my mother joined the, the this music society. And uh, finally, so my, dad was playing the female roles and my mother ended up playing the male roles of the the characters that no none of the men wanted to play because they were like the bad characters so my mother ended up playing the male roles and my father was still playing female roles so I think that's kind of funny. At that time, the music societies in Chinatown were there to provide entertainment and educational value. They also brought in touring Cantonese opera trips to perform in Toronto. But apart from these mentioned, there was something far more beyond that. And another important role for these music societies is they were very important in fundraising. So was raising money when the war broke out in 1937 against Japan, when the Second World War happened. So the music societies would put on performances and um 
the proceeds from their performances would go into the war relief. So they were, they played a very important role in that way. And so even when World War II, when it was over, was a big, big, huge parade that was arranged um, to celebrate VJ Day, victory over Japan. And so um, the, a, a parade, it sort of went all through Chinatown along University Avenue and down Elizabeth Street. And the Chinese operas were really, um, had a big role in providing all beautiful costumes because they had these floats and um, the women and men were dressed up in these costumes. And uh, so there was a lot of excitement and to see people dressed up and, and, and in these parades and hundreds of people came to watch this VJ Day parade. World War II is a major turning point in history for Chinese Canadians. The Chinese community was praised for being especially active in fundraising and supporting the war. When Canada declared war on Japan in 1941, it really helped change wheels on Chinese in Canada, because China was an ally. The Exclusion Act was repealed in 1947. Many had worked very hard to fight for equal rights for Chinese Canadians, and among them, Arlene's mother was one of the most prominent activists. Her parents' dedication became the source of Arlene to carry on such spirit. My involvement in the community, most of it was because of my parents and also because of the restaurant that they owned there. So both of my parents at first were very involved in the community. My father was the president of the Lem Family Association at one point, and then my mother was before she got married, active in the Wong Family Association. So she was involved with the women's group in the Wong Family Association. They sold the fruit store and then we moved to downtown and my parents opened the Kuang Chao restaurant in 1959. And they were both working and they were still active in the community. My father realized that with six children and trying to run a business and trying to stay involved in community work, just wasn't going to lead for a very balanced life. So my parents agreed that my father would be the one that worked primarily at the business. He would look after the business and my mother just worked there on a part-time basis during the busy times at lunch hour and and, and then dinner hours. So that freed up my mother's time. And my father was very uh, modern about this because that would not been a very traditional way of thinking that you want to free up your wife's time so that she can be still involved in community work. So anyhow, my father, and I I always like to give him credit for that, that uh, my mother got more and more involved in community work because she was so involved. She helped out with uh, changing Canada's immigration laws. So after 1947, when the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed, there were still many clauses in the immigration law that prevented families from being reunited, meaning the bachelor society meant to bring their wives and children over from China. So it wasn't until 1967 that all the anti-Chinese uh, language in the immigration laws were lifted. And it wasn't until 1967 that the Chinese could apply on equal footing with immigrants coming from any other country. And that was for the first time. So my mother was very involved in the meantime, in those 20 years to help change the immigration laws so that more and more families could be reunited. Cause she really felt so strongly that families needed to be together. And again, this was a, a value that was instilled by her parents about the importance of family. 
and that family was always first. So my mother got very involved and became um, known as a spokesperson for the Chinese community um, through her immigration work. And also what happened in our first Chinatown is um, in the 50s, two thirds of the land in our first Chinatown, the land was expropriated to build new city hall in the, in the Nathan Phillips Square. So when the new city hall opened in 1965, there were plans to expropriate the rest of China, what was left of Chinatown, the one third that was left. And so the Chinese community fought back this time because the first time around there was no community consultation. It was just the city made a decision, things happened, and then that was it. But in the late 60s, uh, what was very, very different uh, was that there were new city politicians that were being hired that were really concerned about how old the old Toronto was being torn down and replaced with uh, new high rises and office buildings and and other um, developments so so there were new types of politicians being elected um, Jane Jacobs who is a very noted American um, activist had moved to Toronto and she was looking at based on her experience what happened in New York City she was noticing too that things were being torn down in Toronto and so the Chinese when they my mother or uh, headed up a committee called Save Chinatown Committee and so their their work was supported by the politicians and other citizens who were also concerned about things getting torn down for building new things so my mother led that campaign My mother, her role as a community leader, and again, you have to remember that the Chinese community was was quite a homogeneous community. Uh, again, coming from you know the Guangdong province, and so it wasn't uh, until we started having new waves of Chinese immigrants coming that the, the Chinese community became more diverse, more of so many different people. Like, so if you look at the waves of immigrants who came first up until the Second World War, they all came from the province of Guangdong and and close to the four counties and three counties. And then after World War II, with the repeal of the exclusion law for the next 20 odd years with family reunification, people were coming from Hong Kong. So many of the families of the men who were here had fled out of China because that was uh, communism was established in 1949 and there was a mass exodus of people fleeing out of China and landing in Hong Kong. So a lot of people started coming from Hong Kong. So so then in um, then we started in 1967 when the Immigration Act was uh, again uh, totally changed and the Chinese were being accepted from um, on equal footing with all other immigrants, we started seeing even more coming from Hong Kong. And that's why Hong Kong became the largest source of immigrants coming into Canada. Then with another wave, we started seeing in the, the late 70s, with the end of the war in Vietnam, a, a huge influx of Vietnamese refugees who were being sponsored by churches and other organizations in Canada 
they started arriving and a lot of those uh, Vietnamese refugees were Chinese. They, they were um, ethnic Chinese. Um, then we started seeing um, many coming in from Taiwan. And then of course, when China opened up, um, opened up their, eased their uh, immigration so that people were allowed to start leaving China in the 80s, then China became the largest source of immigrants coming into um, Canada. So of course, through all of these changes, we started seeing Chinatown, that our first Chinatown again, two thirds being demolished and only one third now was left. The Chinese businesses and residents moved along Dundas Street and started settling in the Spadina and Dundas area. So that's why we have our second Chinatown there, the West Chinatown or Chinatown West. And um, so with these various waves of immigrants coming in and settling, uh, some of them settling um, in the West Chinatown, that's when we started seeing um, infusion of money going into the Chinatown there. We started seeing like Dragon City was built in the 80s. We saw Chinatown Center um, there. So we started seeing an infusion of money to revitalize the Chinatown because when it's first, the Chinese first started settling there, it was very, very rundown um, area. So then with the influx of money from Hong Kong and then later on from China, we started seeing new buildings go up there and, and a lot of buildings got, that got renovated um, in that area there. So there's been so much change to, to Chinatown. And then of course, once Chinatown West got um, filled up and real estate prices started going up, then that's when we got our third Chinatown at Broadview and Girard, our East Chinatown or, or Chinatown East. So there's been quite a, and I'm, I'm because I grew up in Chinatown and lived in, in, in Chinatown until the early 70s, I saw a lot of all this transition from our first Chinatown to the development of the West Chinatown and then um, later on saw the development of our East Chinatown. So it's like really so fascinating for me. And when I wrote my first book about the history of the Chinese in Toronto, I learn so much about, I mean, and for me, it was a personal thing to learn um, because all these people, important leader, community leaders, not only my mother, but all the other Chinese community leaders, I knew them. I mean, I would, I would only be a little kid at the time, but at least I knew all of them and they were uncle so-and-so or, and uh, so it was very um, revealing to me to learn the history and then to be able to connect the dots of my own childhood growing up to understand why things were the way they were as I was growing up. So it was very, um, as I always say, I always had these aha moments when I was doing all my research. So it led to Arlene's writing career. She's been an avid reader and has been writing a lot. But when she was in university, she was quite occupied with the coursework and essays, things like that. It wasn't until later in life that she started to resume the whole writing. I always maintained real interest in Chinese-Canadian history, and I was always looking for information about our history, and there was not very much out there at all. After I graduated from graduate school, so I got married, and then I had two kids, two boys, and... So everything was on hold um, because when, and I was working full-time, I worked at Toronto Public Library. I was there for a good 30 years, a very happy experience working for Toronto Public Library. And so while I was working, my writing 
was accidentally launched. <laughs> so what happened was um, a publisher had uh, asked, had commissioned someone to write a children's book about my mother's life. And up until that point, there had been a lot written about my mother uh, in terms of magazine articles, newspaper articles, and um, the, she'd been um, featured in some um, other books that had been written about uh, prominent Chinese Canadians, but there had been nothing written for children. And so this publisher wanted to have something um, written about my mother. And so um, work was not proceeding in the way that he had uh, wanted. So he spoke to my mother, he said, um, he said, Jean, I know one of your daughters is a librarian. Do you think she might be interested in taking over taking writing this book and so my mother's immediate reaction was oh no 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 uh, Arlene is she's working full-time she's got two young children and um and her husband is is in the food and hospitality industry which means he's not home a lot to support so she she doesn't have time to to do this so then when my mother told me I kind of went oh my gosh like this was a, an opera a wonderful opportunity and so what I did was I spoke with the publisher and I said, I'll write, um, why don't I write one chapter? And if you like it, then I'll proceed. And if you don't like it, then I will, you know, I totally understand. So I wrote it and he really liked it. And he did, he gave me a very reasonable deadline, which was so I could fit it into my schedule. And so that's how I fell into writing. And then when I finished writing that, it was sort of like another topic, another topic and another topic. So, um, that's led to uh, seven books that I've written about Chinese uh, culture, history, and and different stories. So I I just I always say I accidentally fell into writing, and um, I'm I'm very fortunate because I've always uh, loved writing, um, but it's just that it went on hold for a while, and then this sort of sparked my interest and uh, passion for writing. So. That's how it happened through my mother's life. <laughs> so I also noticed that you have like two more children's book, the Dragon Boat Festival and the Mid Autumn Festival. All again, it's all when I finished my mother's book, the publisher said to me, Arlene, I've been approached um, by some organizations and they were looking for books, books about the um, Mid Autumn Festival because it's an important celebration in the Chinese community. But he said, I tried to do some research. He said, there's nothing written. And I, and I confirmed this because working for Toronto Public Library and I looked and there's nothing. So he said, would you be interested in writing a children's book about the Mid-Autumn Festival and the Moon Goddess? And, you know, and, I, and I said, okay. So I took on that project again, reasonable deadlines and, uh, finished that book and I there was no research in English that I could do and so what I had to do was find books in Chinese when there was you know, quite a lot written in Chinese but nothing in English and fortunately for me I have a live-in translator my husband he's from um, Macau in Hong Kong so he could read and translate for me so I remember spending one of our holidays we went down to Florida and while my two boys were swimming in the swimming pool, my husband and I sat poolside and he would be translating and I'd be writing all this information down. And that's how I found the research. That's how I was able to do my research for my 
uh, Mid-Autumn Festival book. So then I finished that book and then the um, publisher said, how about the Dragon Boat Festival? There's nothing written about the Dragon Boat Festival. So I started doing research on that and there was a little, there was more information in English about the Dragon Boat, nothing written for children, it was all written for um, adult level. So I started doing research on that and what happened was I wrote my first manuscript and my publisher retired so he closed down his publishing business but fortunately um, a friend um, who had very good contacts in the publishing industry he said Arlene um, let me send your manuscript to a, a publisher and sure enough the publisher took on my book um, so I was published by uh, a second publisher and so then I after that was finished, then I got a call from a third publisher and um, uh, said, I no noticed your book about the Dragon Boat Festival and our publishing house, we, we uh, one of our niche uh, areas, subject areas is on um, boating in Canada. So canoeing, kayaking, sailing. And he said, we don't have anything, uh, anything about dragon boat racing and dragon boating. And would you be interested in writing a book about an adult book about dragon boat racing and the sport of dragon boating? And by this time, because when I was doing my research on the Dragon Boat Festival for my children's book, I had uh, a friend who was a, a dragon boater and I asked her if I might be able to jump in a dragon boat because I'd been reading about it and I had my manuscript already written about dragon boating. Um, so I said, can I, I said, I'm a, I know how to do canoeing. I've done, I've been in a rowboat and I'm, you know, I'm a good swimmer. Can I just get in your dragon boat? I'll sit in the back row because there are 10 rows of seats in a dragon boat and, um, and I won't be in anybody's way. So I sat in the back seat and I was absolutely blown away. I just loved it being on the water. Um, and it was nothing like canoeing, a totally different sport. And I got hooked. And at the time, um, our city of Toronto was amalgamated. So um, all the former, so that meant not only the city was amalgamated, but the public library system was amalgamated as well. So we had East York, Etobicoke, North York, Scarborough, York, East York. Did I say that one? So there were five, six altogether, including City of Toronto. So all the library systems amalgamated. And so the, it was um, a group of people got together and say, wouldn't it be great as a way of helping amalgamation of all these different library systems to start a dragon boat team that's called, it's a Toronto Public Library sponsored dragon boat team and have people from all over all these former library systems under Toronto Public Library. So I was asked if I would join in and I said, yeah, I'd love to. And so the team, we started a team up and we were called uh, the Dewey Decimators. And so that's how I was on a library, uh, a dragon boat team representing the Toronto Public Library. So when it came and I rewrote my whole section in my manuscript about dragon boating. So it's one thing to read about something and say, theoretically, this is how it works. And then when I was actually in a boat, I had a whole different 
approach and perspective on the sport and of dragon boating. So I, um, so for this book for the adult Dundurn uh, Publishing House, I um, did the research and published this book. So it was the first book written um, about the sport of dragon boating. And um, then I was more and more serious about dragon boating. And I joined a more competitive team than the uh, Dewey Decimators and uh, then became even more competitive. And so eventually I was on the Canadian national team for dragon boating for uh, two two sessions and um, so I my first international competition was in the United States and then my second international competition was in Hungary and um, for both international competitions I also did a competition in Macau with a women's team at the very competitive level and um, as a result of all my international competitions I now have eight, eight gold medals from the, the competitions because our, our team won, it's a women's team, won uh, first place in all of our events. So, um, so this interest, this kind of hobby became a passion and became something that took me uh, overseas to compete in competitions on an international level. So it's really um, brought a lot of uh, satisfaction and a lot of joy into my life. Um, as a result of doing research and becoming involved with a whole new uh, sport. So, so anyhow, finished my dragon boating book uh, called Paddles Up. And uh, then the publisher Dundurn asked me if I would write a book, book about the history of the Chinese in Toronto. And because there was nothing written about, for, about Toronto's uh, Chinese community. And I finished that one. And then the same publisher Dundurn said, could you write another one, but um, gear it for um, students because of the curriculum changing and incorporating more uh, things about the Canadian Pacific Railway and the contribution of the Chinese community. And um, also, uh, you know, the topics like the head tax and things like that. So I wrote another book uh, again about the history of the Chinese in Toronto, but for um, more uh, for students. And when that one was finished, um, I got contacted by a fourth publisher to write a book about the uh, head tax. And so that's my seventh book. So that's everything just sort of went from one topic to another. So I'm very, very uh, fortunate um, that people were interested in the topic. And I, my writing was at a time when there were not very many writers, like Paul Yi is my, one of the, um, Chinese Canadian writers that I really admire. He's, I, 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 I think he has written over 30 books now uh, on Chinese stories and history. Um, so, but very, very few at the time that I was very, very active in writing. There were very few Chinese Canadian writers at that time. One of Erlin's books, The Chinese in Toronto from 1878, From Outside to Inside the Circle, published in 2011, it presents a comprehensive history of Toronto Chinatown. As the Rice Paper Magazine puts it, the reader is rewarded with the steep and rich cultural tapestry of a history largely left untouched by historians. 
The book was shortlisted for Speaker's Book Award and for the Heritage Toronto Award. When I wrote my first manuscript for that book, I looked at it and then I did the word count, and my word count was two times what the publisher wanted. So I had to cut out half of the text. I had so many stories to tell. Uh, again, many of them from my own childhood memories, but I had to cut out half of the text. So everybody says, "Already, you should write a second, like volume two. And I said, I have the, I have the material, but um, anyhow, there was so much to tell. And again, because the stories hadn't been told before, uh, that's why I had so much material to cover in that first, in that book. But um, half of it ended up in the, in the book. Erlene had been invited to numerous events as guest speakers, both inside or outside the Chinese community. So my speaking engagement. One thing I forgot to mention about my mother and the role of the the Kuang Chao restaurant and the, the the role that she had and this whole subtitle that you mentioned from outside to inside the circle, is something that my mother had had told me about when she went to a segregated school as a young girl. Why she had to be? Why was she being treated so differently? She wanted to be part of the larger Canadian life, and so this was something that um, my my mother was so important in. Helping the Chinese to bridge the Chinese community with the larger Canadian society, and how she did this was through Chinese culture. So it was first、um, was of course through Chinese food. So having the Chinese restaurant Kuang Chao introduced so many people for the first time to Chinese food. The second type of Chinese culture was through Chinese dance. So my mother founded the Chinese Community Dances of Ontario, where she brought that Chinese dance across Canada. To many audiences who had never seen any Chinese dance before, I did study Chinese dance, and one of the、um, one there was a very famous Cantonese opera singer who lived in. She came to Toronto and stayed in Toronto, and、uh, her name was Mo Dan. So,、um, so I did study with her, and、um, I got to wear a lot of the costumes that were that belonged to the music society that she belonged.、To. And so,、um, being part of this dance group, I learned Chinese dance, and then also got to wear some of these beautiful costumes.、Um, so, but my mother always said that when the Chinese exclusionary law was repealed, Chinese got the right to vote. Chinese were now accepted as full citizens. That my mother said the hardest thing to change are people's opinions and perceptions and stereotypes. And so, my mother went out and spoke to a lot of groups outside of the Chinese community. So it wasn't just—I mean, she was a Chinese community leader. So of course, she spoke a lot within the Chinese community, but she also spoke to many groups outside of the Chinese community, and really, in that way, introducing many people to Chinese、um, uh, culture, Chinese ideas, and so. That's how I feel today when I'm going out to do my talks about the history of the Chinese in Toronto, about Chinese traditions, festivals, celebrations, is how do we break down、um, stereotypes? How do we change people's attitudes? How do we get people to stop thinking of Chinese people as being different?、Um, so by my going out and talking to students, talking to organizations, they're learning about the history of the Chinese. They're learning about Um, the struggles that the early Chinese had, and learning that、um, we celebrate everything that everybody else is celebrating—that we're the same as everybody else. We have 
we should be, I, my always want to say that we should be celebrating the things that we share, what we have in common and not focusing on that we look different or we have different ideas and customs, but we are really, we are one people. And so when I go out and talk to groups, when I go out and talk to students, um, I want them to know that um, even though the Chinese, the early Chinese faced a lot of hardships, that in today in Canada, living where we are today, that we really cannot go back to those days where there was so much discrimination against the Chinese, that we really have to build relationships, we have to work together, we have to break down all the barriers, break down the bridges um, and become one. Um, so that's why I think it's so important that I do these talks and tell people about our history, finding it so important, not only to um, non-Chinese audiences, but also there's so many young Chinese Canadian groups that I'm talking, speaking to as well. They said, we didn't learn any of, of this in our, when we went to school. And so they're learning because I want Chinese Canadians to be proud of their heritage, to be proud of how far the Chinese have come and that what we have today is not something we always had. And so we should be um, really making sure we don't fall back in time and go and allow discriminatory things to be happening. So, um, so that's why I feel so strongly about talking to groups about our history. And that's why I'm still doing, um, I'm starting to do more and more Zoom uh, presentations uh, because I can't go out in person. Um, so uh, I want to share the information that I have um, and get people more engaged in history so that they become um, more, like you have to know your history in order to move forward. So that's um, why I feel so, um, that it's so important for me to go out and speak to people about our, our history. To wrap up, I want to highlight what Arlene has brought up during our conversation. The interview took place during a pandemic in November 2020, where there was an alarming surge in anti-Asian hate crime in North America. Arlene is concerned that history might have been repeating. I get a lot of calls to be interviewed about the anti-Asian incidents that have been happening. I, do, I don't want to be interviewed by the media um, because... For me, it's I get I get very emotional because I feel that we we are we're going backwards because from the repeal of the Exclusion Act after Second World War that we've been making really good progress in baby steps towards um, you know this whole idea of inclusion and in equity and um, removal of discriminatory um, things that were so predominant pre World War II. So I felt that we were making such good progress and being in Canada as well, which is um, open and being in Toronto, which, you know, where diversity is, is, is uh, our strength, and, you know, which is the city of Toronto motto. But then with COVID, I mean, we had, the, we had the same thing happen when SARS broke out and that really made us go backwards and then we moved forward again. But with COVID, we're really falling backwards again. So it, for, for me to be interviewed, to talk about it, I, I, it's very emotional for me. And I, I just don't want to um, talk about it with the media because it's just, it's very heart-wrenching to see how things are going backwards. And it's, I find it very, very upsetting. 
Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the stories that Arlene told. I could literally listen to her all day because she's an example of a life journey full of rich experiences. If you wish to learn more about her work and publications, please visit www.arlenechan.ca.